0: isn't it? God with us. That's right. That's the goal, right? God with us. And if you look at the end of revelation, we don't go to heaven. God comes and dwells with man on the new heaven and the new earth. That's what happens. It's God with us. And of course that is initiated through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're celebrating this time of year, thank you to our musicians uh, wonderful wonderful way to prepare our hearts uh, for god 's word and uh, and just to direct them toward him um, i can 't believe how close Christmas is uh, i 'm not used to all this snow before christmas um, it 's a little odd but that 's all right it 's been beautiful for the most part and uh, Enjoyable for the most part. Um, I hope you are ready for Christmas. You have all your shopping done, all your decorations are up, and all of that. Um, but as we're, as we're in this time in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I don't know if, Most of you, if some of you are aware or pay particular attention to the fact that uh, this time is called Advent. The whole month in between the four Sundays, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, are the Sundays of Advent. And uh, that's spelled out in uh, the church calendar, um, Book of Common Prayer, and all of that. And so uh, different churches all over the world celebrate Advent and practice this time of year called Advent. Um, And the idea of Advent is that we are waiting. I mean, the whole purpose is to anticipate a future event and to wait for that event and to practice with our children, with one another, waiting. And we're waiting in anticipation of Christ's birth, and it's building the, the excitement and uh, looking forward to that event. Um, and we do that, and Christians have practiced Advent over the centuries because really what we're doing is we're, we're mimicking what the nation of Israel went through. They were anticipating God doing something. They had all of these promises and they're looking forward to what God would do. And they didn't know exactly what it would look like. But they knew, as we're going to see this morning, that they had these dramatic promises in the prophets and even earlier than the prophets, all the way back to Genesis. And they knew that God was going to be faithful to them and he was going to do something in a big way. And so they were, they were waiting and they were anticipating And in a small way, that's what we build into our hearts when we practice these Sundays of Advent and when we look forward to the Christmas time. They knew God could be trusted with his word, with his promises, and so they they waited for those, those promises with anticipation. Now, when we celebrate Christmas, maybe some of you will sit down with your children or maybe you've done this in the past. And typically when we celebrate Christmas, we read from the Gospels, right? I mean, you read Luke 2. Um, You you read the Christmas story there in the Gospels. But you all know, and and one of the reasons that we practice Advent is Christmas starts much earlier than the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. I mean, obviously, that's when it all comes together and the birth of Christ, the the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, that's the Gospel. But all of that begins with promises that were made much earlier than Luke chapter 2. And so this morning... We want to look back into one of the Old Testament passages that where God makes promises and they're huge promises and they're clear promises. And we want to read those promises and build some anticipation for the way that those promises will be fulfilled. Because the Christmas story is much bigger than just Luke 2. It's the whole Old Testament that builds and we wait and then we receive this gift of Christ the King in the gospels. And so this week the title of the message is Christmas Promised from Isaiah 9, and the next week it's going to be Christmas Received from Luke chapter 2. And I think you will be amazed at the the connections between Isaiah 9 and Luke 2. After we go through Isaiah 9 today, when you go back and read Luke 2, you're going to see some of the same language, the same themes. All of it's there. And it's a beautiful connection because it's very clearly the fulfillment of what God promises in Isaiah chapter 9. And so, open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 this morning. That's where we're going to be if you're not already there. We're going to see three promises that God made to Israel. And these promises will prepare our hearts to receive Christmas with joy. That's the goal. Three promises that God made to Israel and ultimately these promises are for us as well. It's one of the things you see very clearly in Isaiah is that these promises that God makes to Israel are ultimately going to extend to the entire world and to all nations. You see that in the ministry of Christ as well. So three promises God made to Israel that prepare us to receive Christmas with joy. And the first one of these promises, let's see if I can get this thing to work here, is Hope. In Isaiah nine verses one to five now if you 're open to Isaiah chapter nine, you look down at verse six and seven verses six and seven. These are very familiar Christmas verses. You know these verses, right? But so often we read those verses and we we pull them out of Isaiah chapter 9 and we just read them and they're wonderful on their own. But when you see the context in which these promises come to Israel and what God is telling them is going to happen, I think they... a much bigger reality. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So look up at verse one of Isaiah chapter nine. You're going to get your fingers ready because we're going to flip around here some this morning. I want you to, to see a number of passages, but look at verse one. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, so in these verses, he's talking about two tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, do you know where these tribes were allotted land in the nation of Israel? It's very interesting to see that. Here's a map that you probably can't see that well, but I put some giant red arrows on there to draw your attention to. You can see the Sea of Galilee up there, hopefully. And to the west of the Sea of Galilee is Naphtali and Zebulun. And from the best I can tell, the city of Nazareth is located in Zebulun. Okay, So these are the areas where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. As we've been studying Mark, this is where he spends a lot of his time, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now I want you to notice what he says about these, this particular allotment of land here. Zebulun and Naphtali. He says in verse 1, in the former time, so in the past, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, this particular area was brought under God's judgment, contempt. He was angry with them for things they had done. But then he says, in the latter time, so in the future, at some point in the future, he has made glorious. So, those two words, contempt. And glorious are significant here. In the past, God has brought them into judgment and contempt. In the future, he will bring them glory. All right? Let's start with the past and we'll get to the future here. What contempt does he mean here? What What has God done? What judgment has come upon this particular area on these tribes of the nation of Israel? And ultimately of the whole nation of Israel is what he's talking about here. To understand that, we're going to do a little bit of a journey through Scripture, okay? You need to go all the way back in your mind to when the nation of Israel is on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy, at the very end of Deuteronomy. And I'll put the verses on the screen here, but or you can look them up if you want. But the nation of Israel is on the edge of the promised land. Moses is about to pass away. Joshua is about to take the leadership. They're looking into the land And when they're there, the book of Deuteronomy comes to them and in chapters 27 and 28, God says, listen, when you go into this land that I'm going to give you, chapter 27, he says, I will bless you if you will obey the commandments that I've given you. And chapter 28, he says, but if you don't obey the commandments I've given you, you're going to come under a curse. And he outlines all of these judgments that are going to come on the nation of Israel if they don't obey him. And all of this is going to take place depending on what they do when they go into the promised land. Now, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is a long chapter, so I don't want to read the whole thing to you, but I do want to show you some of these judgments and curses, all right? These should be on the screen here. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. If you want some heavy reading, go back and read this whole chapter. It's, I think it's the longest chapter in Deuteronomy, but some amazing things here. Let me show you some of them. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Let's look at this. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. So he promises darkness to them. You shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. He continues on, look further down, verse 49. He promises exile to them if they continue in disobedience. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. One more, verse 64 to 66. So he will bring a nation in to judge them. And then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. They'll, they'll be exiled from the land and there shall... There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. So Israel got all of these commands and the possibility of blessing or judgment as they're going into the promised land. Now, You know your Old Testament and you know what happened when they went into the promised land. They got into the land and things went haywire really quickly. I mean, you go from Joshua where they conquered the land into Judges and everybody's doing that, which is right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges ends with with these horrible stories about the corruption and deceit and evil within the nation of Israel. And then they ask for a king, and under the kings, things don't get any better. They're looking good for a while with David and then Solomon, but then they get even worse. The nation splits, and they are sinning and worshiping other gods and doing everything that God told them not to do in Deuteronomy. And God is patient and patient, and he sends prophets to them, Elijah, Elisha. All the prophets that are mentioned in in the Old Testament that wrote books, they wrote those books to warn the nation of Israel and to tell them, if you do not turn from your wicked ways, these curses that God gives you in Deuteronomy are going to come upon you. And Isaiah is one of those prophets. And look how Isaiah starts his prophecy. Go back to chapter 1 of Isaiah Isaiah's is looking back to Deuteronomy, knowing what Israel should be doing. And here's what he said. Here's what God says to Isaiah. Verse two, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. Israel's not even as smart as a donkey. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Look down at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, and he calls them Sodom. You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They're maintaining this outward practice of the sacrifices, but their hearts are turned away from God, says the Lord. Verse 11, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New Moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And he continues on for chapters, indicting Israel for their sinfulness. Flip over to chapter five and verse 25. Here he tells them specifically what judgment is going to come upon them. Look at verse 25. Therefore, chapter five, twenty-five. the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and sh- struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And here's what he'll do. He will raise the signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. This is describing this nation that's coming to carry Israel away into exile. Verse 29, their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. So this is the promise that God is saying, I'm gonna do exactly what I told you in Deuteronomy that I'm gonna do, because you have forsaken me, you've walked away from me, you've worshiped other gods. And so it's in this environment that Isaiah six comes. And you all know Isaiah six, it's Isaiah's commission to ministry in the midst of this sinful people. God says, Isaiah, I want you to go me And look what Isaiah's ministry is going to be like. Look in Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And here's what Isaiah's ministry was going to be like. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah is going to go and preach and people are actually going to become more hardened in their sin because of the rejection that they've already given to God. And look how Isaiah responds, verse 11. This is what I would say too. Then I said, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, exile, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then in the midst of that, God promises grace, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, if you're hearing this promise of exile and you're Isaiah and you've just been commissioned to go for the Lord, it would be incredibly discouraging. You're basically going to go preach and nobody's going to listen and they're going to get more hardened in their sin. And so look how Isaiah, God tells Isaiah to respond in chapter 8, verse 17. Here's what Isaiah says. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. God tells Isaiah, the Assyrians are going to march through the land of Israel, and they're going to devastate it. But you need to trust me. Now look down at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8. This is what it's going to look like when Assyria comes through the land. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And then look how he describes this exile and this invasion. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is what Isaiah and the nation of Israel have to look forward to. This invasion of an incredibly Horrific foreign power. And so this threat of invasion is immediate. It's going to happen. This power of Assyria, they're looming over the nation of Israel because of Israel's sin. And it's in that context that you transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And it's in that context that you get to these promises here. One of the things about the prophets in the Old Testament is They tell people this is God's judgment on you, but they always, always speak about God's covenant faithfulness to his people. God's not ultimately going to cast his people aside. He's going to send them into exile, but he's not going to fully abandon them. And so what God says to Isaiah and to the nation of Israel and ultimately to us in chapter nine is I want you to look past Into the distant future, I want you to look past the exile. Look past the difficulty. As hard as it's going to be, I want you to trust in me and I want you to hope in me. And here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do down the road. Look into the future to a time when I will redeem my people and ultimately where I will redeem people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is called giving hope. And this is why verses 1 to 5 are our first promise, and it's hope. God tells him, keep trusting me. In the midst of darkness, trust me. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Here's what he promises. You can read these verses now, hopefully, with a, a new light on them. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, here's his promise. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The darkness of exile that he just talked about in chapter eight, verse 22 the darkness of having a foreign power, come into your land, take your house, take your kids, take everything you own, kill your cattle, carry all of it away and you into exile. That darkness will live in the future. Verse two says they have been walking. My translation says deep darkness. Another way to say that is that they have been at the shadow of death. Through exile, the nation of Israel is on the brink of death and destruction. They're stumbling in darkness and God in his grace gives them hope by saying, I'm going to bring light. He wants them to look up and see, this is like the moment when night gives way to those first streaks of orange in the dawn. And you know that day is coming and it's gonna get brighter and brighter. And God tells Israel, look forward to that hope In that, his promises of hope continue. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. Even though they're taken into exile, they're going to be multiplied again. You have increased its joy. It's hard to think about joy when they're walking in the shadow of death, but that's what God promises. They rejoice before you, and here's how they rejoice as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's hard for us to imagine what this type of joy looks like because we go to the grocery store and get our food and it's very simple and easy. We don't think about the joy of a harvest, but if you're dependent on all of your food for the entire year based on the harvest, when there's a good harvest, it would be overwhelming joy. He also compares their joy and says it's like when they divide the spoil, when Israel would go into the land and conquer these people and take the spoil. There was great rejoicing over that because the Lord had provided for them. So there, would be, there will be joy when the light comes in the future. Now look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Israel will suffer under oppression, under foreign invaders. And all of these implements here, the yoke, The staff and the rod are all tools that were used to control and to bring under one's authority and even to oppress. And so God says, at some point in the future, I'm going to break all of these tools of oppression and authority over you. And it's going to be just like the time when Gideon used his 300 men under my authority and broke the chains of Midian. You all remember that story when that happened? Purely by God's power and by his grace. But God says, that's exactly the same thing that I'm going to do in the future. So he's painting this amazing picture of light, of joy, of freedom from oppression. Now look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, in every garment rolled in blood. So the things that are used for war. Boots, war clothes, all of those armor. What's going to happen to them? They will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Because they're not needed anymore. Because when God brings this freedom from oppression and light and joy to the nation of Israel, you won't even need these things anymore. Because it will be a time of peace that will come upon you. Now, this is quite the picture that's being promised to Israel here. I mean, some amazing things that God is saying he's going to do. But I hope you've noticed something as you're reading through these promises, as I've read through these things. They're all in the past tense. I mean, we know this is going to happen in the future, right? I mean, he says in verse 1, in the latter times. So in the future, this is going to happen. But then he makes all these promises in the past tense. Why? Why does he do that? Because when God promises something, Even if it's in the future, it is so sure that it's going to happen that he can talk about it like it's in the past tense. And he wants them to hope in that. And that confidence in God and in these promises is what gives Israel hope and what gives you and I hope. Hope is not just a desire for something good to happen in the future. It's not just a, I hope the Lions will win the Super Bowl. It's nothing like that. Hope is centered on the person of God and his character and his promises. It's a confident assurance of what he's going to do. God promises these things to the nation of Israel in the midst of a dark time, a very dark time. And what was to happen is Israel was to, in the In the the years in between, the promise and the fulfillment, Israel was to continually go back to these promises and say, we can trust the Lord. He's going to accomplish these things. He's going to fulfill his promises because of who he is. And that is the exact same situation that you and I find ourselves in, right? We have promises of salvation, of future salvation. We have promises of heaven, of God being with us on earth one day. We have promises of his return and we don't see them yet. But what we are to do is we're to live our lives in light of those promises and go back to them as if they were past tense. God is so sure that they're going to happen. He can talk about these things in the past tense. That is hope. And that's what God gives Israel here. One author said this about hope. To have hope then is to believe in eternal life with God as the supreme goal of life. And then to live one's life by that goal. Hope shapes your everyday life because you're so sure of where you're headed and of what's going to happen in the future that it dramatically impacts the way you perceive the world and the way you live life. And that brings us to our second and not nearly as long promise as the first one. God promises three things here to Israel for the future. Hope, trust me. And then he promises in verses six and seven, an everlasting king. So we end verse five. And in these verses, he has described these amazing promises, but he has not said how he is going to bring these things about. He's just said, I'm going to give you light. I'm going to free you from oppression. I'm going to bring joy to you. I'm going to end war. You're not going to suffer with a staff and a yoke on you anymore to Israel. But he doesn't tell us how he's going to do these things. How's he going to bring them about? And it's interesting, too, if you look back at verses 1 to 5, God is the one acting here. He's the one saying, I will do these things. I will do these things. So how is he going to bring about these promises? What's he going to do? Look at verse 6. Here's how. It begins with the word for because he's explaining how he's going to accomplish these promises. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God will fulfill this hope through a child. It's pretty counterintuitive. Unless you've read your Old Testament, and then you know that this is normally how God works. In Genesis chapter 3, he promises a seed, a child to be born. Seed of Eve. God's plans have always revolved around a child in some ways. But notice a couple of things about this child king. Verse 6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. If you look back up in verse 4, what does it say about Israel? The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder. Israel had a great burden and oppression on their shoulders. And this child, this king will come and he will take the burden of authority and of rulership on his shoulders on behalf of his people. That's what he's going to do. Notice in verse 7, this child is going to sit on the throne of David. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, he's going to sit on the throne of David. All the way back in Samuel, God promises David that one of his descendants is going to reign forever. Look at 2 Samuel. Oops, I left it out of there. Second Samuel chapter 7. Let me flip over there and read this to you. Second Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant here. God makes some incredible, incredible promises to David, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And God tells the people here, look, that promise that I made to David, I'm sticking by that. <laughs> I'm still gonna do that and it's gonna come in the future and this child will reign over the throne of David and sit on the throne of David, he's the means by which all of these promises of hope and light and joy will come to pass. But this defeat, this future Davidic king back in Isaiah 9, he will be quite different from other Davidic kings. Look at the names he is given in verse 6, or in verse, yeah, in verse 6 before verse 7 there. Now, I put this quote up a second ago, but this is what one commentator had to say about this list of names. And I thought this was very funny. Although some commentators have expended a great deal of energy attempting to make these titles appear normal, they are not. (laughs) I love that, right? Trying to downplay these titles, but these are significant titles and significant promises. Look at them here. There's four of them. Wonderful Counselor. He brings this child, Davidic king, will bring a wisdom that is far above man's wisdom. Mighty God. I mean, that speaks for itself. And I think as Isaiah heard this and wrote this down, he probably would have been confused and shocked by this. Because remember, there's no nation more monotheistic than Israel. So what in the world does this mean? That this future king will be called Mighty God. I'm sure they didn't understand it in many ways. Everlasting father. You think back to the book of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel requested a king of God. Why? Because they wanted stability. They were tired of the judges going in and out and ruling for a while. And they wanted a stable, kingly line so that they could be confident in that. Well, that didn't really pan out for them, did it? But God says here that there's going to come a king who will pan out for you and he will rule and reign and it will be a permanent authority. I mean, You've already seen at the end of verse 7, from this time forth and forevermore will be his reign. And this king will be a father. He'll show concern and compassion and exercise discipline and care for his people. And finally, the prince of peace. This child king, Davidic king, will be the one who administrates shalom. That's the word that's used here. Now, we don't really use that word a whole lot, shalom. But this, this is the ultimate final result of Christmas. This is what it's all pointing toward, shalom. The reign of this king will result in peace in shalom. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that brings us to this last prompt: peace, verses 6 and 7. So he's called the prince of peace. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His, it says his, the increase of his government will have no end his reign will expand and expand until he has all of creation under his authority. And as that happens, the peace, the shalom that he brings will have no end. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of the word peace. Maybe you get annoyed with hippies because of the word peace, Um, but please don't respond that way to the word peace and shalom here. We tend to think, Maybe I tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict. And, and that's, that's true up to a certain extent. And certainly this king will bring the absence of conflict. But this shalom, this peace that he brings is a much bigger reality than just the absence of conflict. Keep that word in mind. We're going to talk about it more next week. Continue reading in verse 7. How will he do this? with justice and with righteousness. That's what his reign will be characterized by. You know how sometimes, no matter what country you live in, sometimes the government seems to do things that just aren't quite fair. That's not gonna be true under this king. He will bring justice for all people and righteousness will be the tone of his authority and of his rule. And it's that type of reign that will bring justice. Shalom to the world. Now, this word shalom, I keep saying it. We're going to talk more about this next week. So you're going to have to come back to understand better what this means. But I'm telling you, this is the end game. This is the goal. This is what the whole thing is moving toward. This is why we celebrate Christmas. And I want to show you something about that word peace or shalom that is in our text for next Sunday. Maybe you've never noticed this before. Glory to God. This is what the angels say. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. It's the same word that's used there among those with whom he is pleased. I mean, this is the ultimate reality of his coming. This is what the child who is born in Luke ultimately will bring. And all of this that he's talked about in Isaiah 9 1 to 7, and that we'll see next week in Luke chapter 2, all of this is going to be accomplished. Look at the end of verse seven. Why? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is not dependent on you and I, on our goodness, on our righteousness. The word zeal here can be translated jealousy. I love that. And the Old Testament consistently calls or tells us, describes God as a, a husband who is jealous for his bride and for his people. He wants their affection and their love. And he's making these promises here and he will secure their affection and their love through the son who is coming, this child who will be born. He's not gonna allow them to stray. He's gonna be faithful to the covenant promises that he has made. And all of these things will come to pass because Yahweh is faithful and because he is jealous and he will passionately ensure that these things come about. All of it's accomplished because of him. Now, this is definitely an Old Testament passage, and this is given through Isaiah to the people of Israel. But the beauty of this is that you and I get to rejoice in these promises as well, because we have been grafted in to these promises through the work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Israelite, the true king. As we are united with him, we receive the benefits that are promised and that are given here. We have hope. We have a future king who will bring about peace. All of these things are true for us. So what is our response to this? Our response is to read these things, to rejoice in these things, and then to live and to celebrate Christmas with hope. That the birth of that little baby boy is in many ways the beginning of all of this coming to pass. And we don't see it fully here yet. I've not experienced shalom this week in the way the Bible describes it, and I know you haven't either. But trust these promises and trust the one who will do these things with great jealousy and with great zeal and let that shape your daily life and the way you live today and the way you approach everything you do. It's all because of his grace and his zeal and his passion for his glory and our good. That's something to trust in and celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. We can trust you with our lives, with our eternal destinies. We can trust you today. We thank you for these promises. We thank you that we get to see your faithfulness throughout the ages. And we get to rejoice in these things as we celebrate Christmas. Draw our hearts to you now. Give us hope in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.